religion. Man's concoction. Where man has mistakenly said, all roads are leading to the same place, and what man believes is to heaven. When you start analyzing the religions of the world, you find out they are all merit and works based. Where individuals think if there is just enough good that I can do, that God will be accepting of me and pleased with me. Sadly, so many individuals would say, well, I'm a good person. I try to live a good life. I'm better than many. Well, that may be true. But to be the best of the worst is not anything to be proud about. You're really comparing yourself to the wrong standard. If you begin to think, I'm a good person. I'm better than most. I have the merit to make myself acceptable to God. In contrast, the psalmist said, if you would mark iniquity, something we'll all acknowledge. The reality is, no one's perfect to err is what? Human. No one's perfect, but somehow we think, if I just do enough good, that'll give me credibility, merit before God. What a horrific system to live under. And no wonder when people talk about the essence of what it is to be a Christian means that you are an individual that genuinely is devoted to and loves God. You can't have a love for a being that you are never sure if you have done enough to have His smile of approval. But thankfully, the Bible presents an altogether different picture. That our salvation is not based on works of righteousness that we might perform, but solely on the merits and the mercy of Jesus Christ the Lord. If we turn to Psalm 130, we see this truth so clearly described. Let me read the psalm in its entirety as we begin to just reflect on a few of the concepts that we find. It begins by saying it is a song of ascents. We don't know who the human author was. We're not even exactly sure when the occasion took place that caused the psalmist to pen these words as a reflection on his circumstance. And many commentaries have indicated that maybe it was left in more of a nebulous sense of the circumstance so that it's easier for all of God's people in a variety of circumstances to be able to identify with this song. It was a song that was composed to be used 
when the men were traveling to, from their homes up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord as he had designed for the men to do three times a year. And it is called the Song of the Going Up. In ours, the Ascents. It's one of the pilgrim songs. And what does he say? Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in His word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, covenant faithfulness, loyal love. With the Lord there is chesed. That he is always faithful to himself and what he has promised. With the Lord there is loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This song is addressed to the Lord himself. And you will notice that he uses both Hebrew terms that in our English Bibles are translated as Lord. For example, in the first verse, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, all capital letters, the personal name of God. Then, Lord, capital L with a small O-R-D. In other words, Adonai, my master, the one that I am serving, hear my voice. If we look at this song as it is addressed to God based on who he is and what he has promised, we find that it falls into two major sections. Verses 1 through 4, we find the psalmist is expressing his cry to the Lord for his mercy, for his help, for his grace. And in verses 5 through 8, his confidence in the Lord for his covenant faithfulness, his loyal love, that he will do all that he has promised, the fulfillment of his chesed. If we look at this song, it's a lament song, where the psalmist is in a time of great difficulty, affliction, trouble, and turmoil. He has no resource in himself to alleviate his situation. And yet, for an Israelite, for a God-fearing individual, even though he's in a desperate plight with no resource in himself to alleviate his circumstance, he is not in a hopeless situation. He has a God who is able to do beyond all that he could ever ask or he could think. And so in this lament, he also expresses his confidence in the Lord. This song has been categorized as one of the penitential psalms of the book of Psalms. In other words, where an individual is confessing his sin before God and looking to him for mercy. And if you want to make a note, we actually have seven of those such psalms. It would be Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, 
Psalm 51, Psalm 106, this one, Psalm 130, and then Psalm 143. But the uniqueness of this penitential psalm, where in humble confession before the Lord, the psalmist does not indicate that his dire circumstance is because he has done sin, he's being chastened of the Lord, and now he is confessing his sin to the Lord. When you go to Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, both which were written by David, David acknowledges his sin before the Lord. In fact, in 51 he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this deed. It is a recognition that he acknowledged the wrong of his doing. You don't have that in this psalm. Instead, it is the psalmist recognizing from beginning to end, wherever we are in our relationship with God, if I'm just entering into that relationship, I am there because of grace. And as I grow in the Lord, as I walk with the Lord, as I mature in the Lord, as I seek to faithfully serve the Lord, I am still standing before God in grace. If He would mark iniquity, could you stand? I couldn't. If you would hold me accountable for the offenses I've done since trusting Christ, I couldn't stand. It's only and all of grace. And that's what the psalmist wants us to remember. From beginning to end, it is the bestowal of grace upon grace upon grace. God faithfully giving it to His erring children as He, through the power of the Spirit of God, changes them more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And while today I am not what I used to be, I know I am not yet what I will be. And what's going to make the difference in my life is grace. It's the work of God to make me more like Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist says, out of the depths, he is using the example of a horrific flood. We can identify with that, can't we? He's using the example of surging waters that are washing everything away. And he's clinging on for life. He has no resource in himself. And he uses a Hebrew verb tense that says, I have repeatedly, I have earnestly, I have continuously been crying to Yahweh. Out of the depths I keep crying to the Lord. And I'm saying, Lord, hear my voice. Answer my petition. And what you and I need to remember is that when we earnestly cry to the Lord and it seems like we keep crying and we're not seeing the answer, it isn't because God is silent to us that His ears are blocked up, that He doesn't hear, and worst of all, that we would ever think that He doesn't care, even though the evil one would like to give us that thought and impression. 
The reality is more secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. Not even the stars in the sky that not one of them is missing because of the excellency of his power can compare to the loving concern and the providential work of God on behalf of his children. And what is it that God is doing? When we're crying to him in that desperate plight, when we find no resource and it seems like heaven is closed to our cry, we're pouring our hearts out in earnest before him. That God is still working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he loves his children so much that he will faithfully complete the work of conforming each one of them, each one of you, to Jesus Christ the Lord. That's why he's working. That's why at times he withholds the answer. It's not because he's deaf to his children. And here the psalmist is recognizing that as he is crying out to God, he's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know where else to turn. He is acknowledging that the only thing that I can uh, claim before God is that my God is a merciful and gracious being. If God would mark iniquities, if He would hold them against us, who could stay? Isn't it similar to what Jesus did to the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees in His own day when they brought the woman taken in adultery to Him and say, the law says we should stone her. What do you say? The one that's without sin casts the first stone. See, religious doesn't change who you are. God doesn't say, if you want to be acceptable to me, reform yourself. What God says is, I need to take out that heart of stone and put within you the heart of flesh. I need to regenerate you. I need to make you new. I need to do a work that you could never do for yourself. And here's the psalmist is recognizing. When I go to God and I have need, I don't stand before him and say, you know, I thank you, God. I'm better than most people. I really deserve the good life. I deserve you hearing my prayer and providing me with whatever it is I'm asking of him. It is never that way for any one of God's people. When out of the depths you cry to the Lord, the only thing you can cling to is grace, mercy, to help in every time of need. It is the recognition that we are never the wonderful saint that is deserving of benefits from God. We are always those who are the objects of His long-suffering patience and grace. We are humbled before Him. Luther loved these psalms, and he classified it as one of the psalms of Paul. And the reason he called it the Psalm of Paul, or one of the Psalms of Paul, is because in the mind of, of Luther, what is expressed in this Psalm is the same truth that Paul brought out in, for example, the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. And so Luther said of it here, the, these Psalms teach that the forgiveness of sin is secured to them that believe in Christ without the law. And without works, it is a recognition that God is the one who graciously bestows that forgiveness according to his own good pleasure. And so he says, the reason why this is the situation 
is that you may be feared. Why is it that God has worked in this way? It is that God will have that place of preeminence that he so rightfully deserves. For example, if you're familiar with the scriptures, with whom does God say he's going to share his glory? You know, it really upset me the first time I read that. Because I thought he ought to share a little bit of it with me. But Joe Saul does not deserve any of that glory. And I hate to tell you this, neither do you. God deserves all the glory. And God has so worked in providing the forgiveness of sins so that he may be feared. Do you understand the appropriateness of that glorious term? Uh, being a God-fearing individual? As it is described by us in Psalm 130, it is a recognition that when you and I consider the work of God in salvation and the forgiveness of sins that we have in Him, it doesn't make us arrogant. It doesn't make us individuals who are haughty, who try to impress others with what we're really like. It is the recognition that grace is amazing. And you know why it's amazing? It saved a wretch like me. It is a recognition that I'm down in the gutter with everyone else. I can't stand and say before the world, I'm going to take my chances because I'm a good person. I'm better than others. Jesus Christ came into the world to save whom? Sinners. Didn't come into the world to save righteous individuals. And when we gather before the throne of God, along with Rahab the harlot, along with um, David, Bathsheba, you'll be there and won't be looking down on them. You're a trophy of grace, just as much as is true of them. And God has so worked that instead of the individual who comes to God through Christ is lifted up with a false sense of self-value and worth and wanting to think that he or she is better than the rest of mankind, it is a recognition that how thankful I am that God has so worked on my behalf that you should be feared. Now we've talked about this idea of what's in, involved in being a God-fearing individual. It begins by recognizing God has given the reverence, the honor that he so rightfully deserves. But it is also a term that includes the idea that you are an individual that's not depending upon yourself, but an individual that is depending upon the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ. And when you, become, when you come before that throne, you come with empty hands and it's solely to the cross that you cling. And it's a recognition that if Jesus Christ and what He has done is not sufficient to save me from the damnation that I deserve, there is no plan B. There is nothing else that can help. And you understand that when you stand before God, yes, providentially kept secure in Jesus Christ, it is only the thread of God's grace and mercy that keeps you there. 
It is never because God needed you. It is never because you merited this work of God. It is solely and always of grace that you may be feared. I am depending upon Him to do for me what I can't do for myself. And the other component of being a God-fearing individual is you are one who loves Him now because He first loved you. You cannot be a God-fearing individual in the biblical sense without being an individual that loves God. One of the first places that comes out so clearly is the declaration that the Lord made to the nation of Israel recorded for us in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and being. When Christ was asked, what's the greatest of all commandments? Love the Lord your God with the totality of your being. And as you read down through there, after it talks about that loving devotion to God, it says, He shall be your fear all the days of your life. And it has an impact upon your conduct. And so God has so worked that His people honor and respect Him. God has so worked that His people seek to do what pleases Him. God has so worked that His people are clinging tenaciously to Him, knowing there is nothing else that can hold me up. And God's people are individuals in which God has so worked that they genuinely love Him. That is why the Apostle Paul can say, as he wrote to the Corinthians, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be an anathema. He's under the curse of God. God has so worked that individuals should fear Him. In a group of commentaries from the Old Testament, a man by the name of Dalich said the following, in commenting on this idea that you may be feared. In other words, thrusting away all self-merit, it teaches us to take off our hat before God and confess it is all of forgiveness and nothing of merit I am a trophy of grace so after the psalmist describes his cry to the Lord for his unfailing grace and mercy in verses 5 through 8 he expresses his confidence in the Lord for his unfailing chesed, his covenant loyalty. And not only is that true for the psalmist, but for all of God's people. You notice he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word I hope. And my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. In all of this intense crying that is made to the Lord, that God would intervene on his behalf, he is an individual that is looking for that glimmer of light that says, here's the answer. And his focus on God to intervene and God to answer is more intense 
than the individual that's standing guard at night and he keeps waiting. I'm looking forward to the east to see the glimmer of sun coming. If you've spent time awake during the night, time seems to go so slowly. And the reality is, it's like an invigorating experience when the light begins to dawn. And he is saying, more than the devotion and the intensity of looking forward to the light of the day, that would be true of the individual that's been given the responsibility of standing his position through the night as the watchman. My soul looks to God with that same earnest intensity. He alone is the one that gives me hope, encouragement, expectation that it is well with my soul. And why does he do that? Because he's made promises to his people. And once God has spoken, he always fulfills what he says. And this psalmist is looking expectantly upon God to fulfill what he's promised. And he tells Israel as the nation to do the same. To not be looking at themselves or their own resources, but upon a God who is able to accomplish all that he has promised to his people. Now, two different Hebrew words are used here. One translated wait, the other translated hope, but they're really almost synonyms. And the whole idea that is here is that it is a dependent longing. It is resting in. It is eagerly expecting God to do what God has promised. And the reason God's people can have that expectation that the future is going to be bright for the people of God is because God is faithful to His Word. And in particular, what is it that He's going to do on behalf of those who trust Him? Not only forgive them for their sins, but you notice He says, at the end. Verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, personal God. For with the Lord there's loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption. And He, and the way it is structured in the Hebrew text, He is saying it is He and only He. No one else can do what He will do. And what is it that He's going to do? He is the one who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Redemption. He pays the price. What a debt you have. What a debt I have. And how foolish for us to think that we can ever pay off that debt we have to the God who created us to reflect His image. There's your downfall. There's mine. It's not how moral or ethical you're acting in this world. What was God's creative design for man and woman? Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And the way you and I fall short of manifesting that glory is the indebtedness we have to God for failing to be and do what He created us to be. But God pays the price. 
He himself, he alone, accomplishes this work to redeem Israel, all of his people, from their iniquities. So the recognition is, the Lord hears the cries of his people. In his own timing, he showers them in his mercy and in his grace and in his compassion as he conforms them to the image of Christ. And to those who look to him, because of Jesus Christ the Lord, he himself paid the price. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because it was earned? Because it was deserved? Not at all. Because there is mercy and there is forgiveness. There is grace with our God. And God makes it very clear that he delights in that broken and contrite heart. That his intention is the wicked would turn from its sin, his sin and call to the Lord for his unfailing grace. And for those who have put their confident trust in him, you will never be disappointed. You'll never be ashamed. No matter how raging may be the flood, God will never leave nor forsake his children. He always deals with us in grace. And God's people for all eternity will marvel. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me?